Good morning. Man, what a day already. Good grief. Between all those testimonies and the, the amount of truth we just sung, we can all go home. <laughs> but we must move on. Keep going. If you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the first chapter of Peter. Towards the back of your Bible, first chapter of Peter, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 5 today. And if you have a handout, uh, you can follow along uh, on there as well, or we're going to be doing a, going through a couple other passages too, so those other passages are on the back of the handout. So if you don't feel like flipping pages all morning, you can just go to the back of the handout and kind of follow along there as well. It is awesome to see God magnified so clearly this morning. His glory so clearly perceived through the testimonies born today. I love seeing baptisms. I love seeing baptisms. I love seeing people walk in obedience and courage and boldness. And if you saw that today and you felt encouraged and your faith is in Christ and you have not been baptized, don't think you have to wait till next year. We'll do more next Sunday. We'll do them every Sunday if you want. That's fine. If you're ready, come see us. Earlier last week, I was watching a documentary on apologetics. If you don't know what apologetics is, it was mentioned in, the, in one of the videos, but it's it's a word that we get from the word apologia. It means a ready defense. Typically, it's used within the Gospels or within the uh, epistles as uh, a defense of the Gospel. And so that's what this documentary was about. It was about the defense of the Gospel. And so in this documentary, a story is told about a woman. This woman approaches a man, he's a preacher, and she says, hey, give me evidence for the resurrection. Now, if you've ever had anyone approach you with that question, you're probably thinking, man, this is a layup. This is what I'm talking about. I want these people to come to me and ask me these questions all the time, right? I mean, my ministry would be so much more fruitful if people just come and ask me this question. These are the questions we want to hear. And this is the way he felt too, right? She seemed genuine. She seemed like she wanted to know genuinely the evidence for the resurrection. And so the man, he gave her evidence. He gave her the evidence, and in fact, if you've ever taken any time to look into the evidence of the resurrection, you would be astounded at the amount of evidence that is there for you to see. You'd be amazed at the evidence you would find that Jesus rose from the dead. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, he was a professor uh, at Harvard. He wrote the book, literally, on the law of evidence. It's, it's the law of the treatise of evidence. Basically, it's the very same book they use in the courts today to determine if evidence is really evidence. He wrote the book on evidence. This man is quoted saying, there's more evidence to the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other historical event in history. You want evidence, it's there. So this man, he was very excited. He began to give her evidence. He began to talk to her about the empty tomb. The fact that there was many eyewitnesses that saw Jesus die. They saw him place his body in the tomb. And then three days later, that tomb was empty. The birth of Christianity was born on the testimony of Jesus resurrected. All they had to do was drag his body through the streets and Christianity would have died in the womb but they didn't have a body. They still don't have a body. This man began to talk to her about the changed life of the apostles. These men who were hiding in one minute and then boldly proclaiming the life of Christ the next, that he was risen and giving their lives for it. He began to talk to her about this, the Roman guards who were guarding the tomb. These men who were like the green berets of the Roman guard. How impossible it would have been to steal the body with these men at their post. It would have been impossible to steal the body with these men, this huge stone in the place. He talked about all the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus alive after, after his death. Over 500 eyewitnesses of Jesus resurrected after his death. There's biblical accounts. There's extra biblical accounts. 
eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And he talked about the impossibility, the stark impossibility that these disciples who were giving their lives away for this testimony of Christ crucified and risen, he talked about the impossibility of these disciples giving their lives away for what they knew to be a lie. If anyone knew it was a lie, it was them. And every single one of them gave their lives for it. Not one recanted. He gave her a world of evidence. A world of evidence. Evidence upon evidence. And you know what? He convinced her. He convinced her it was true. He convinced her that God raised Christ from the dead. But her response to this new truth, her response to this truth was probably not what you think. Her response to this truth said, she said, okay, you convinced me. Jesus rose from the dead. But that doesn't make him God. And she walked off. We don't know what God did in her heart that night while she laid in her pillow. But we see that the information she received and even took in to be true did not lead to belief, but unbelief, at least in that moment. Why am I telling you this story? Because we may come here today, on Easter Sunday, or any given Sunday, and hear facts about God. We may come and hear facts about God, about what he did. We may even come to the conclusion that it's all true. We may come to the conclusion that it's believable but then let, not let it have any impact in our life whatsoever. We can come to this service week in and week out and learn a lot about God, but never really grow in our knowing of God. It is knowing God. It's knowing the one true God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures that creates change in the human heart. It is knowing God that conforms us to his son. And so the question isn't, on Easter Sunday, on this Sunday today, the question is not, did Jesus rise from the dead? The question is, what difference does it make in your life? What difference does it make? How did, these, how did this event in history affect the lives of the apostles? How did it affect the lives of the disciples? How did it affect the lives of the early church? And why should our life look any different? shouldn't. The change it had on them should be the very change it has on us. So for at least part of the answer to that, we will look today at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. But before we read, let's go, let's go to God this morning. Let's pray. Let's pray that he would be uh, gracious with us. And he would give us eyes to see, that he would give us eyes to see what he has called us to in light of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, today. As we come to your word, we pray, Lord, that you would do what only you can do. Awaken the mind. Stir up our hearts. Fill us, Lord, with affections for you. May we see who you are. May we see, Lord, what you have done and recognize, Lord, that in you, Lord, because of what you have done, there is great and glorious hope. Encourage us today, Lord. Where hearts need to be softened, softened. Where eyes need to be opened, opened. God, do only again, Lord, what you can do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you should be there now. First Peter 1, starting in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's word to you this morning. May you have ears to hear it. Our main point this morning, our main point that we're gathering from the word today is that the evidence of a new birth, the evidence of a new birth is a new and living hope in our faithful and merciful God. The evidence of a new birth is a new and living hope in our faithful and merciful God. For sake of context, uh, Peter, the, the letter that Peter wrote is written to a group that has been dispersed throughout Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. It's a group of Christians who are, in particular, facing persecution. They're facing a lot of persecution. They're facing a lot of trials. There's a lot of animosity. There's a lot of heat around them. And they're suffering great hardship for the sake of Christ. And so Peter's aim in writing this letter is to encourage them. It is a letter of encouragement and exhortation to endure. Endure the suffering. Endure the trials to persevere. And so he starts in verse 3 with a glorious doxology. A praise. He draws them to praise. If you're, are you going through stuff in life? Start with praise. This is where Peter wants them to start. Start with praising God and watch your heart change. Look to see what God has done and begin to praise him. That's what Peter's doing here. This is a song. This is a song of praise. He starts in verse 3 that says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, right off the bat, Peter begins his encouragement by pointing them to the worthiness of God to be praised. May we never forget that. He's worthy to be praised. This is not uncommon uh, in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. We hear the phrase throughout the Old Testament a lot, right? Uh, blessed be God. Blessed be the God of Israel. Blessed be God for what he has done. This is a very common phrase in the Old Testament, but Peter here add something to it. Every, every unbelieving Jew that would have heard, blessed be God, would have said, amen. But that's not what Peter says here. He gets more specific. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. He gets more specific, meaning that God, who, the God who is worthy of praise is also the Father of our Lord Jesus. Which implies that if you don't know Jesus as Lord, you don't know the Father. The one true God and Father that is blessed is the Father of Jesus Christ. That means that if you don't know Christ, you don't know the Father. If you do know him, you do. You do. Peter is implying that Jesus is the Son of God. The Son of God, this does not mean that he is created by God, but that he is equal with God, co-equal with God, co-eternal with God. This is why they picked up stones to, to stone Jesus in the book of John, because he, being claiming to be the Son of God, makes himself equal with God. And that's what Peter is saying here. This is what it means to be a Christian. We know God through and only through Jesus Christ. This was Peter's confession in Matthew 16, right? You are the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so this is our confession as well. This is our confession of the church. Jesus said that it was upon this truth, it was upon this rock-solid truth that to know Jesus is to know God, and it was upon the mystery revealed that Jesus will build his church. And he's still doing it today based on that confession. Is this God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of praise? But why? Continues, he says, he says, who according to his great mercy, according to his great mercy, 
Do we understand how merciful? Do we get the weight of how merciful God has been towards us? Or do we kind of feel like we deserve God's love? Do we kind of act like we deserve it? Like, of course God is love. He's going he's gonna to save me, right? I mean, I'm not, I, know, I know I've done some bad things. I need to be saved, but of course he's going to save me. I, I'm, I'm worthy. I'm worthy. I'm his, I'm his child, right? We're all God's children, right? No. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, Ephesians 2 tells us that before we placed our faith in Christ, we were not children of God. We were actually children of wrath. We were children of wrath. He would go on and and say in in Ephesians uh, 2 verse 12 that we were actually, because we are children of wrath, we were separated from Jesus and therefore separated from God. There was a chasm between us and God because of our sin. Because of our sin, meaning our carnal hearts. Sin is always at at the root, it's always a heart thing. It's always a heart thing. It's not about what you did, it's what you desire. It's our carnal desires, namely our desires for self, our desires for self-glory. We were made to glory God, to give glory to God, but we seek glory only for self. This is what we do, especially before Christ. Our constant preferring of created things over the Creator Some of us, before we came to Christ, were even very religious. Very religious. We we were trusting in our own good works. We were trusting in our own merits, our own righteousness, our own man-made religions. We suppressed the truth in our own unrighteousness, thinking, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. Look at what I do to earn God's favor. Before The reality is, is that before God moved in our lives, Before we came to Christ, we had done nothing but sin with every act we ever did. Every act before Christ was sin because it's not done in faith and it was done for self-glory rather than his glory. Every act is a sin before Christ moves. And therefore, because of that, before we came to Christ, we had done nothing but defame the glory of God with every aspect of our lives You know what this means? This means that before we were once a people without hope, completely separated from God. We had no hope, no God. We were utterly dead in our sin. We were dead in our sin. We were dead in the depravity of our hearts, like Savannah said. Utterly depraved, utterly unable to choose God over the one we loved most, namely ourselves. So what do we deserve? We deserved only God's just wrath for us. We're not, we weren't good. We did not deserve to be saved. We deserved God's wrath. That's what it means to be a child of wrath. What does a child of wrath inherit but wrath? That is your inheritance. If you're in wrath, you're the child of wrath, you receive wrath in the end. But if you're in Christ, hear me on this. If you're in Christ and have placed your faith in him today, if you have recognized your helpless state before a holy God, and in that helplessness you have clung to the work of Christ and Christ alone and his work on the cross, His work on the cross to pay for the penalty of your sin and you're trusting in him and him alone that God raised him from the dead. If that is you this morning, then you should be praising God today and every day for the rest of your life because that's mercy. It's such mercy. He didn't give you what you deserve. He did not give you what you deserve, but instead has taken that wrath that was due to you and it was due to me, and he took it upon himself. And in doing so, he transferred all of your sin, 
All of those desires he put onto Christ on the cross. And when Christ died, it died with them. He went to the grave and he left it there and he rose from the dead. That's not all. That's not all. He also gave you, in exchange for your sin, he gives you Christ's righteousness. How unfair is that? How unfair is that? What kind of God is this that would show such mercy as to pay the price for us, wipe our slate clean, and then fill our account with Jesus' perfect life? Who would do that? There's an eternity of praise to be had in the phrase, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who would do this? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is he not worthy of praise forever and ever? Of course he is. But he continues in 1 Peter here. He continues and he says, He has caused us, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our first sub-point today is this, is that God accomplished salvation for you and raised you up to receive it. God accomplished salvation for you and raised you up to receive it. So not only did God do what was required for your salvation, but it says here that his mercy is displayed and that he caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's awesome. We were once a people without hope, but now because of God's great mercy, we have a living hope. We have a living hope because God caused you, caused us to be born again or reborn. Jesus in John chapter 3, speaking to Nicodemus, said, no one, can, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless he's been, what? Born again. You must be born again. So the question is, how does someone become reborn? Well, you can't. You can't become reborn. Not in your own power. Not in your flesh. It must be and only be a work of God to do this miracle in you and give you new life. That's why it says God caused you to be born again. It is something, it is a power outside of you that happens to you inwardly. In fact, Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our sin. What do dead people do? Nothing. They're dead. Right? So we were dead in our sin and the desires of our heart. Our desires, our passions are only for self and sin, which lead to death. But God, being rich in mercy, that means he's, he's lavishly rich with mercy. He's got, he's got more mercy than you can sin. He's got more mercy than you can fathom. He's rich in mercy, and because of who he is, he made you alive. He saw you. He saw you. He saw you dead in your sin, and he didn't leave you there. He had every right to do so. He had every right to leave you in your sin, but he didn't. He pursued you. He chased after you, and he drew you, and then he raised you and me. The only reason we believe the gospel the only reason we believe the gospel is because God made us alive to hear it. He made you alive to see it. He made you alive to, to hear it and love it. And if he hadn't done it, if he hadn't made you alive to see it, hear it, love it, treasure it, then you would have rejected it every time you heard it, every single time. Just like the woman from the, from the story I told earlier. You, would even, you might even say, I believe it to be true, but it's not going to save me. I don't need saving. Or any other, any other number of excuses because it was just bouncing off a dead heart. We love our sin too much 
unless God changes us. And so that even our faith is a result of God's work in raising us from the dead. It's what it says in 1 John 5, 1. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. New birth precedes belief. God does it. God does it. He gets the glory. All of it. All of it. Crazy part is that Peter says that this happens through the resurrection. So somehow your new birth today happened because it went through the resurrection. I understand it is this. It was the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection that made this possible. His blood purchased it and his resurrection made it sure. His blood purchased your new birth and his resurrection made it sure or possible. As was read twice already today, so there are no mistakes. Romans 6 says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's a miracle. Only God can do that. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's new birth. That's new birth. So if you were in Christ today, that means you've been placed in him by God, placed into his death, and raised with him to newness of life. That's mercy. That's mercy. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Our second point, our second sub-point is this. A living hope is a certain hope. A living hope is a certain hope. You've been born again. You've been given new eyes to see the person of Christ. And this God you once hated, you now love. You have new desires, and this means you also have new hopes. A new kind of hope. It says we have a living hope. So therefore, not a dead hope. We should see this in contrast to a dead hope. We have a living hope. The world offers all kinds of dead hope. That's the difference. That's the hope we were clinging to before Christ. It was a dead hope. Many of these hopes can be good things, but none of these hopes are guaranteed. None of these hopes are certain, and all of these hopes, even if achieved, never satisfy. They never satisfy us, ever. Hope of money, houses, cars, relationships, power, control, the hope of escape, whether through vacations. Anyone ever finished a vacation and said, man, that was satisfying? No. Come back more tired than we were when we left. Hope of escape from drugs or alcohol, the hope of an easier life, the hope of healthy eating, healthy living. Even if we achieve these things, they never satisfy. Hope of economic prosperity. Anybody worried about the economy right now? There's no hope, even if the economy were to change tomorrow for the better. There's no hope in that. All of these, even when achieved, they never satisfy our thirsty souls. We will strive and strive and strive to get these things. And when we don't get them, we'll feel dead inside. And when we do get them, we'll feel dead inside. That's dead hope. Worldly hope looks like, I hope I get, fill in the blank. Man, I hope I get, fill in the blank. The world says, man, we live in uncertain times. That's not true for the Christian. Not for the Christian. We can live with absolute certainty. Worldly hope is uncertain, but living hope? Living hope is hope in that which is absolutely, without exaggeration, certain. Living hope is absolutely certain. We define biblical hope as this. It is the present certainty of a future reality. It is a present certainty of a future reality, meaning 
that we can know with all certainty that our future is absolutely secure in Christ. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has secured for those who are his a future inheritance. This is what Peter is aiming at. He wants them to think future. He wants them to think eternally minded. He wants them to praise God for the future he has purchased for us in Christ. It's a future inheritance. What do the born of God get? They get an inheritance. New father, new inheritance. In verse 4 speaks to this. Speaking in verse 4, he says this, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. This, in, this inheritance, this, we should understand this is, this is eternal life. Eternal life. What is life that you know God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent? This is eternal life. But the future part of it is that we will be raised from, from the dead with new physical bodies that can never die again. We'll be on a new earth in the presence of God forever. No more sin, no more pain, no more struggle, no more loving anything more than God. We won't struggle with those things anymore. No more working for our own glory. No more seeking satisfaction in things that will never give it. None of that anymore. Just perfect life in the presence of Jesus. Worshiping him in, the, in all that we do as we were created to do. Verse 4 tells us that this inheritance, it, it is imperishable. So it's eternal. It lasts forever. It lasts forever and ever and ever and it will not end. Verse 4 also tells us that it's undefiable meaning it, can, it can't spoil. It can't spoil. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where things spoil. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. It will never, ever, ever fade. But not only that, it says that God is keeping it for you. He has it ready for you. He's keeping it for you. It's secured in his hand. And then in verse 5, it continues. He says, who, being you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so God is keeping this inheritance for you, purchased solely by the blood of Christ. It's kept in heaven for you, and he's keeping you for it. Now, in this life, he's keeping you for it. The faith... Listen, the faith that was granted to you in the new birth, he will continue to grant you that faith over and over and over and over again by the power of the Spirit, through the living word of God, so he will keep you all the way to the end and into glory. He will do it. It's as though he's, held, he's having his, our inheritance in one hand and us in the other, and he's not letting go. He's holding us together for it, and he's bringing us closer and closer to it. Every single day. This is our certain future. This is our certain future. Now, the reason our hope is, is living, the reason our hope is living and active and certain is because it is grounded in the God of the living and the resurrected Christ. So when we think of, of living, we think, okay, we've been born again. We're alive. Jesus is alive. We look back on our new birth and we think, okay, I'm, I'm alive, and this is, this is a living hope in the resurrected Christ, so I will be alive with him one day. It's alive, which means it bears fruit, and it's growing. It's a hope that, that starts this big and grows and grows and grows as the more we get to know God. It's a living hope. The question I have, though, is what does Peter, what does Peter appeal to, though, as the grounds for our certainty? Okay, sure, Matt, you can say it's certain, but what does Peter appeal to as the grounds, or the justification for why we can believe that this hope is absolutely certain? Number one, number one, our certainty or assurance of this future is as certain as our resurrected Savior is alive. 
Our certainty of this future is as certain as our resurrected Savior is alive. Every other religion in the world hopes for a future of some kind of heaven or some kind of reincarnation or some kind of bliss. No one ever thinks the afterlife is bad, right? But they put their trust in themselves. They put their trust in themselves or in a prophet that is still in the grave. But we have a living hope because our God He didn't leave us in our helpless state. He came, he lived, he died, and he rose, and that grave is empty. We have a living hope because our God is alive. It's a hope that is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is our first fruits. In other words, he was raised, so we know we too will be raised. This gives, especially to those who are being killed for their faith, which isn't just early church testimony. It is testimony of Christians all over the world right now. For even those who are being killed, especially those who are being killed for their faith, this specific truth brings them great hope to endure suffering. To endure suffering knowing that their God has gone before them. He's gone before them and he's put an end to death. And so they can preach Christ boldly. They can proclaim the truth boldly and they can do it with joy knowing that because our Savior lives, their bodies will not remain dead. That's why we read, O death, where is your sting? It's gone. It's gone. We have a certain hope because we have a certain resurrected Christ. Number two. Number two, our certainty or assurance of this future is as certain as our God is faithful. Our certainty or assurance of this future hope is as certain as our God is faithful. Coming back up into verse 3 again, you notice that Peter is not saying that God is worthy of praise or trust merely for what he did. He's not worthy of praise for what he did. Primarily, he's worthy of praise for who he is. The word in verse 3 is according to. The word in verse 3 is according to, which means in, with respect to. With respect to. He's drawing our attention not merely to the actions of God, but hear me, the character of God. He's drawing our attention not to the action of his mercy, but the character of God who is merciful. This is the way Paul says it also in 2 Corinthians 1. You can see this again on the back of the handout. Starting in verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely or hope, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This was his hope on the character of God who does what he does. This is what God does. He raises the dead as evidenced by Christ. Verse 10, he says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. Listen to the certainty Paul has. He delivered us and he will deliver us. He's certain because he knows who God is. He knows who God is. Or again, in 1 Peter, again, in the very chapter ends, in verse 20, verse 21, Peter says, He, being Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God, in him, in his character, in his nature, who he is. And again, Peter closes out the entire letter in 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 chapter 5, verse 10, that says this, After you have suffered a little while, is that an understatement? (laughs) No, I don't think he means it to be. He means it to be an overstatement compared to eternity Life here on earth is just a little while. 
And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, that's his character, that's who he is. He's the God of all grace, has called you, that's new birth, to his eternal glory in Christ. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He will do it because he's the God of all grace. See what he's appealing to? His character? The mercy we see here in verse 3 in our text, this mercy, it's not a one-and-done thing outside of God's normal behavior. We shouldn't see that as like, well, God's not normally merciful, but this is pretty merciful. This is who he is. This is who he is. How do we know that God will continue to do all that he has promised to do? Because this this mercy shows us perfectly that it is in line with his nature. This is who God is. This is his character. Our God, he is a merciful God. Our God, he is a gracious God. This is the heart of God. He's long-suffering. And he's almighty and all-powerful, therefore able to do all that he's willing to do. It's one thing to be able to to want to do something because of your character, have no power to do it. He's got it all. He can do it all. This is who he is. And so he's willing and able to do all that he's promised. And so you can bank on it. You can bank on it. How do I know I'll be raised? How do I know I'll be raised? Because God does everything in accordance to his character. And he who is merciful will continue to be merciful to his children those who are born of God. Because those whom he foreknew, as it says in Romans 8, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he, being Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. We should see that as complete sanctification and physical resurrection one day. He predestined us to it. He called us to it. Well, how do you know that he'll keep me for the future? Like you said, how do you know he'll keep me for the future? Well, Because those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Your future is so certain that Paul talks about it as though it's already happened. It's that certain. Well, uh, how do I know my faith won't fail? Well, because he, because he, because he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. He does it all. Do you see the hope you have in Christ? Do you see the hope you have in this merciful God who is for you? If he's for you, who can be against you? What can stand against you? Nothing. If that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what will. And so he displays his character. He displays his character by revealing his mercy by causing you who do not deserve it and me who does not deserve it to be born again, he gives us new life, a living hope that is secure, is as secure as Christ is alive and he is alive. Amen? The question is, what do we leave here with today? Right? Have all this information, so what? What does living hope look like? What does living hope look like? I have eight of them, but I'm going to run through them, most of them. So on the back of your handout, you'll see little living hope produces blank. Try to keep up, okay? A living hope, much like living faith, it it always produces fruit. It always produces fruit. Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me bears much fruit. That's what it means to abide, to hope in, trust in, find satisfaction from. And when you do that, you bear fruit. And the first fruit we see in the same chapter of 1 Peter 1 is we see joy. Verse 6 and 7. We see joy. Rejoice, he says. This is what living hope produces. Hope for the future, a security in God's character today produces joy that sustains us even in suffering, even in trials, even in hardships, even when life is not going the way we want it to go. How can we rejoice in suffering? Well, because God is faithful to use our suffering for us rather than against us. Your faith, Peter says here, like gold is 
being refined in suffering. It's being refined. It's like heat. When you heat gold up, impurities rise to the top. Goldsmith wipes off the impurities and he keeps doing this until he can see the image of himself in the gold. This is what trials do. They refine our faith. So that means that through trials, our faith becomes stronger. And then this way you can rejoice. You can rejoice because your faith has become stronger through suffering. Romans 5 says this, and not only this, but we also exult. It's like rejoicing in our tribulations. What? Knowing that tribulations bring about perseverance. Okay? And perseverance a proven character. And proven character, hope. Certainty. And this certainty will not disappoint. And so your faith will increase. And what's awesome about this is that the faith that is increased brings praise from God in the end. Who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Your faith, your faith is well done. In this, you can find satisfaction knowing that because God keeps you, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't be, don't, don't feel weird that God will praise you. He loses no glory when he praises you for faith in him. He loses no glory when he praises you for faith in him. Number two, they're going to go much faster. Number two, fruit of the living hope. Fruit of living hope is a deep and genuine love for Christ. That even though you can't see him, you love him, and you believe in him, and you trust him, and you are joyful knowing that one day you will see him face to face. Number three, it produces sober-minded people ready for action. These are people ready to get to work. These are people ready to do what God's called them to do. Ready to go complete and fulfill the Great Commission. Number four, it creates, it produces a people with eyes fixed on the grace to be revealed to us. It, it creates a future-minded person saying, I'm going to get it all in the end. I'm going to get it all in the end. I don't have to have it now. It's a future-minded person. Verse, we get that from verse 13. Number five, it produces a person who desires to be like God. Like the one who gave them hope, we desire to be holy as he is holy. You fall so in love with the character of God, you can't help but want to be like him. That's what hope produces. You want to be like him. It produces, number six, a people that fear God. It produces a healthy fear of God, which means we are in awe, in awe of the great sacrifice that purchased us. Meaning, hope-filled people never lose the awe of the great and glorious sacrifice that it took, namely the spotless Lamb of God to redeem you. We never, ever lose that awe. Number seven, number seven, it produces a love for one another. A sacrificial love for one another that says, again, these are the people I'm going to be in eternity with forever and ever and ever. I, these are my, this is my family that produces that kind of love for one another. Number eight, produces a people who endure to the end. It produces an enduring person. And not because, again, that person is strong in their own flesh, but it says because you were not born of perishable seed, but of the imperishable word of God. It was the word of God that, be that began the work in you. It was the word of God that began the work, of you, work in you, and it is the word of God that never, ever perishes. Therefore, neither will your hope. Neither will your hope. So in summary, living hope Living hope produces eternal-minded people. Eternal-minded people so certain on their future in Christ and his present love for you that we consider this life as nothing to be compared to the one to come. No hope in this world, no suffering now, nothing in this life can compare to the one that is to be revealed to us, but rather we place all our hope in the next life so that we can hold this life with open hands. Open hands hands. This means that when your business shuts down, you hope in God. When your business shuts down or looks like it's going to, hope in God. When your marriage is hard, 
Hope in God. Hope in God. When, when you feel like the government isn't the way you want it to be, hope in God. For when your children are disobedient, hope in God. For when your family isn't what you need them to be, hope in God. When your church body isn't perfect, hope in God. For when your health is fading or constantly sick, hope in God. What keeps you from throwing God away in these moments? What is it? What keeps you from being like the seed in the rocky soil that withers away as soon as hardships come? It's God. It's God. It's the living hope in the person, character, nature, mercy, grace, justice, love, and eternal God. That's who keeps you alive in all those circumstances. We look back on the grace and mercy received in Christ, and then we look forward, trusting in this future grace, trusting in who he is for the next minute, for the next hour, next month, the next 50 years until he again carries you into glory. He will do it. He will do it. When we find ourselves in these situations where we feel like we have lost hope, we must remember the gospel. It's at the root of our hope, isn't it? The gospel. But if you lost hope and you remember the facts of the gospel, you didn't lose hope because you forgot the gospel. It's because you forgot the God of the gospel. You forgot about who he is. So life is not what you expected it to be. Raise your hand if that applies to you. Life isn't what you expected it to be. That's okay. That's okay. There's another one to come. You get another one. And the God of all grace, he secured it for you, and he's keeping you for it. So yeah, you can feel sad about what you hoped for in this life when you don't get it. You can, you can mourn the life you wish you had, but then in hope, we wash our face and embrace the life that God has for us in Christ Jesus. And then as a body, we help one another. As a body, we help one another perceive all of life and all of our circumstances through the lens of God's character and his promises. Amen. Amen.